If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you through our Patreon. This episode of Green Dreamer is also supported by the Plant Your Change movement, which plants a tree on your behalf every time you use your own existing debit or credit card, simply by rounding up your change for you. Yes, we should keep pressuring the big corporations and governments to do their part and be accountable to their contributions to land degradation and deforestation. But we are at an all-hands-on-deck moment where every tree consciously planted will count, and if our change can be rounded up just a little bit once to three or four times per day for our daily purchases. Well, let's just say three times 365, we could each contribute to planting up to or more than a thousand trees just in this next year. The program collaborates with two established reforestation nonprofits, Arbor Day Foundation and Eden Projects, which we've donated to before as well. So if you want to join or learn more about Plant Your Change, you can head to greendreamer.com slash plantyourchange. This will be linked in the show notes of this episode as well, but again, it's greendreamer.com slash plant your change. The statistic that I shared of 95% of farmers are white are um, farm owners, principal operators. So when we pull that lens back and look at, you know, who is actually doing the most farm work in this country that those demographics change really quickly. And we see the extent to which the agriculture labor in this country is performed by Latinx individuals, but farm workers from, you know, all across Central America. That was Sophie Akoff, the co-executive director of the National Young Farmers Coalition, which is a national advocacy network of young farmers fighting for the future of agriculture. Today, we'll be discussing the challenges that young people uniquely face, especially Black, Indigenous, and young people of color, when trying to become farmers and food producers. The distinction between farm workers and farmers, and how we might go about addressing the injustices of land access in this country, and more. So, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I'm from suburban Southern California, so I didn't grow up on a farm and I really didn't visit a production farm until college, but I did have some experience uh, with food production living in California. We would drive every summer up to the Sierras and on the five past the monocultures and feedlots of the Central Valley. And so I, my initial experience with agriculture was really one of distrust, uh, wanting to find ways to grow food that was more in line with my values and wanting to treat the land and animals differently. But I really didn't have any models of different agriculture and what that might look like. But I was organizing from a really young age, from high school, you know, doing work to protect animals and the environment. I've always been an organizer. I'm a people person. It comes really naturally to me and I love connecting with others over common interests. And so when I went to college, I was working, organizing students in the youth climate movement and started getting interested in food and sustainable agriculture as a way to fight climate change, but proactive. So instead of being against certain kinds of energy use, it was it was for sustainable agriculture. And I was working to get better food on my college campus at Wesleyan University. And that's when I met some local farmers in Connecticut and heard about their journeys and saw how they were raising food on their farms. And I remember the first time I saw broccoli growing, it was not that long ago when I was in college and being so fascinated to finally see how my favorite vegetable was grown on an organic farm. And it turned out that Wesleyan had a two-acre student-run organic farm called Long Lane. And I didn't get involved until the end of college. But when I did, I was really energized by the work and the, again, the proactivity of getting to grow food in a way that really protects the land for future generations and nourishes that land and being able to provide for the community. Also, we gave a lot of food away from Long Lane to Middletown residents. So I moved to Hudson Valley after college for my first apprenticeship program to really learn how to farm from an expert farmer and was seeing so many other young people around me in the Hudson Valley trying to farm and and coming up against really large structural barriers. And so I found the National Young Farmers Coalition. It was in early, early years. Founder Lindsay Lesher Shoot. It was me as a volunteer and Lindsay and a part-time organizer, Wes, really working to address these challenges that young farmers were facing and working with farmers all across the country who were facing similar challenges and um, was really excited to put my passion for organizing together with this newfound love of farming together. So that was the beginning. Right. So I want to dive all into that shortly, but 
For now, we are going through this COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot of people that I've interviewed across different industries has said that this time has surfaced and even worsened a lot of the pre-existing issues and injustices that existed. So I'm curious, what are some of the ways in which this pandemic has revealed the vulnerability and, like you said, structural issues within our current agricultural system? Yeah, absolutely. You know, COVID is compounding the challenges that young farmers face and revealing the unequal opportunities for young people in agriculture. Young farmers already have difficulty accessing land and capital, and that access is not felt equally by all farmers. We know that young farmers of color, in addition to all the challenges that other farmers face, are dealing with structural racism that is both historic racism that has legacy today in disparate wealth amongst communities of color, but also ongoing racism that is that is leading to black land loss and discrimination at the USDA that are ongoing and affecting young farmers right now in the opportunities they have in agriculture. And with COVID, the most obvious structural imbalance is that farmers with a lot of land resources are doing better. They are the ones who are getting direct aid from the government, larger scale commodity operations, and those without secure land tenure or just starting their businesses aren't able to pivot as quickly, right? And they don't have the capital to invest in in changing their business strategies on the dime. So yeah, I mean, COVID-19 in who's getting the illness as well, you know, all of all farmers right now are essential workers, but those, you know, farm workers and food chain workers are the most at risk, work in the most dangerous working conditions, don't have access to paid sick time and often personal protective equipment that they need, you know, live in close quarters with other workers, take transportation, and then have their actual work environments where it's not possible to stay six feet away. So, you know, we're seeing it both at the farm level in terms of how farmers are able to react and pivot and deal with uncertainty. But we're also, of course, seeing it with those workers who keep our entire food system going and are the reason why we have food in our grocery stores now, but have been really left out of COVID relief efforts. Mm. And so we're, we're asking in solidarity with organizations uh, like Farm Worker Justice and United Farm Workers for hazard pay for these farm workers that are really putting their lives on the line to feed our, our communities. So, I mean, even before this pandemic started, there was already a trend of an increasing wealth disparity and increasing economic disparity. So it sounds like what the pandemic has done is just it's really accelerated that trend. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing land prices continue to increase before the pandemic. But now, you know, anecdotally, farmers are seeing land that was available on the market before COVID being bought really quickly, especially around New York in the East Coast, around New York City, as those 
with wealth are able to leave their city apartments and buy land and often put a fancy house on that farmland to make it so that it'll never be accessible to a farmer Mm -hmm. again. So according to a 2019 report by Ferns Ag Insider, for four decades, the average age of farmers has been on the rise. It was 50.3 years for the principal operator in the 1978 consensus, 53.3 in 1992, 57.1 years in 2007, 58.3 in 2012, and now is about 59.4 years. Mm-hmm. By contrast, the average age of new and beginning farmers is 46.3 years, says the 2017 consensus, end quote. So for you guys, what constitutes as young when you're talking about young farmers? And what are some challenges that they uniquely face when trying to become farmers, especially if they don't have a family background and inherited land? Mm-hmm. We are seeing continued increase in the average age of farmers, farmers over 65, outnumber farmers under 35 by more than six to one. And as the census, the 2017 census showed, farmers over 65 increased by 11%, but farmers under 35 by only 2%. So even though we are seeing farmers under 35 increase, we're just not keeping pace with the aging of the agriculture industry. And what's at risk is as these current farmers who are aging out and retiring are putting their land up for sale, young farmers from non-farming families, there aren't very many to begin with, and those who are farming are not in a great financial position to be able to purchase that farmland. So land access is is a huge barrier. Most of the farmers in our network are between the ages of like 20 and 40 are graduated from high school or college and starting their farm businesses. We need more farmers in the US. So we'll take all of the young all of the new farmers of all ages who want to get engaged in agriculture. So no no age cutoffs there. But this new generation of young people, they do face really unique challenges. And in our 2017 National Young Farmers Survey, we found that 75% of our respondents were not from farm families. They're first generation farmers. And so as you mentioned, they're not inheriting land from their parents. They don't grow up on a farm and therefore have all of the skills they need when they're ready to start out on their own. They don't know how USDA works because they don't have that family experience of getting loans and assistance through USDA. So it's a new, a new generation and a new set of challenges. And student loan debt is also really unique to this generation, right? And is a challenge for all young people but for young farmers, it's it can be prohibitive to start a farm business with an existing debt burden. We see so many young people choose not to go into agriculture because they have student loans and, and just don't see a pathway to paying off those loans through agricultural work, especially in the beginning when they're learning how to farm and the, the way into agriculture is often through an apprenticeship 
which, you know, if you need to make monthly student loan payments, you really can't afford to do a low paying apprenticeship to learn the trade. So once people do decide to go into agriculture with student loans, many find that they have trouble taking on more credit, more loans to grow their businesses, uh, whether they're, you know, denied loans or just don't want to go deeper into debt. But of course, farming is really capital intensive business. And so access to, to low interest rate loans is really important for growing a farm business. So we've seen student loans really stand in the way of young farmers success. And so we've had a campaign since 2015 to add farmers to the public service loan forgiveness program, uh, which exists for doctors and teachers, government employees, nonprofit workers, to really incentivize young people to choose these careers by offering a pathway out of student loan debt. After 10 years of income-based payments, the rest of their loans are forgiven. And the program is not perfect. It has a lot of challenges. So we're working both to add farmers to that program to really make a statement that farming is a public service and we need to encourage young people to choose this profession, but also looking at ways that we can work in coalition with other organizations that are working for student loan forgiveness or debt cancellation, since this is an enormous barrier for all young people. And the House did have some student loan forgiveness in its HEROES Act that was passed uh, recently. And the Senate is now working on its version, which is the next COVID relief bill, which we are advocating that there is student loan forgiveness as a component of that relief, especially now in COVID-19, when economic challenges are so great, you know, having student loan forgiveness for young people is a great way to boost the economy. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but it's not just about young and beginner farmers versus more senior ones. It's not just about young people who have to manage student debt or who are struggling with credit versus young people who maybe don't have that economic barrier. It's also very much about racial equity. So can you talk more about how racial injustice has been embedded into farming and how it might present a greater struggle for young Black, Indigenous, or farmers of color wanting to assess Establish themselves in this field? The reality now is that 95% of farmers in the US are white. And this is a direct result of policies and practices that have been designed to prevent success for BIPOC farmers. You know, we know that our agricultural system is rooted in stolen land and stolen labor from colonization, the displaced indigenous people from their land to the institution of slavery that really built the wealth of this nation on the backs of black folks. And when slavery ended, freed slaves were not given their promised 40 acres and a mule. You know, a lot of people have heard of that promise, that like idea of land reform, of um, giving access to land to freed slaves. But that was not, that was a, a promise that was not realized. And so Many former slaves were able to purchase land on their own with no assistance from the government, but they've lost um, most of it due to violence and intimidation, documented discrimination by the USDA, 
and then through some legal mechanisms like heirs property that have led to black farmers unfairly losing their land. And so we see in 1900, black Americans owned 14 million acres of land, 90% of that has been lost. And, you know, the racial injustice in our policies as a country, you know, are not are not restricted just to African Americans, but we see Asian Americans prohibited from owning land in many Western states. We continue to see immigration laws that prevent immigrant farm workers from becoming citizens and, and being able to move up the ladder from farm worker to farm owner, you know, despite their immense knowledge of agriculture. But they're ineligible for the USDA programs designed to help farmers get started mm-hmm. and stay farming. So that pathway is is much more difficult for them to become farmers. So it's clear that racism past and present shapes the system that young farmers are operating in today. And we see that most most specifically with land, which is, you know, the land reform that did happen in Reconstruction, like the Homestead Acts. We saw white settlers being gifted farmland while while black Americans were denied that opportunity. And so we see today and who's able to own land in this country is a direct result of those policies and who is able to pass that land on between generations. And so we're seeing very unequal starting places for young people of color and entering agriculture, which is lacking the the land in the family to farm, lacking inherited wealth in order to purchase land. And then, of course, just ongoing discrimination that makes it really difficult for young farmers of color to know about land that's transitioning. You know, so much of it is is transitioned through like an old boy network, um, farmer to farmer. A lot of farmland doesn't even go on the on the open market and young farmers of color continued to not have access to those entry points. Lost my wings, can't fly, give me some faith. There's a sickness inside of me, you run so deep. I don't know how to heal the pain, it fills me with hate. It's a weakness I can't fight, it comes in the night, it won't leave me alone. Like a dark shadow I need angels I need angels You mentioned that 95% of our farmers in the United States are white. Do you know if that number includes our farm workers? Because the last time I saw, I believe over 50% of our farm workers are undocumented and therefore have been really limited in their ability to, for example, unionize and seek for better mm-hmm. working conditions, get proper health care, and so forth. Yeah, and that's a really, really important distinction, which is who are we talking about when we talk about farmers? The statistic that I shared of 95% of farmers are white are um, farm owners, principal operators, mm-hmm. according to the census. So when we pull that lens back and look at, you know, who is actually doing the most farm work in this country, 
that those demographics change really quickly. And we see, you know, the extent to which the agriculture labor in this country is performed by Latinx individuals, but farm workers from, you know, all across Central America. I'm also thinking about how climate change may have increased the risks of agriculture and maybe made it even harder for young and beginner farmers who understand the vital role that regenerative farming can play in helping to address climate change, as well as, of course, marginalized indigenous farmers whose communities may still hold the place-based knowledge that we need to best care for our lands. So in other words, maybe the people we need most out on our farmlands stewarding the earth may have the largest hurdles in front of them. Yeah, I think you said that so succinctly and perfectly. Yeah, the paradox here is that that cultural knowledge, that indigenous knowledge of regenerative practices was systematically discouraged by USDA and land-grant universities and cooperative extension that whose task was to go out into the field and help farmers adapt to changing markets and changing agriculture, you know, scaling up their operations, those practices of regenerative agriculture, like rotational grazing and cover cropping, etc., were discouraged by the agriculture establishment and technical service providers that were supposed to be helping farmers. And what we know now is that These practices are, again, seen as incredibly important for building soil health, which retains water and is a much better climate strategy in drought conditions. These practices are essential for fighting climate change and having agriculture play a positive role instead of a negative role in trapping carbon in the soil. But the, the one, yeah, exactly as you said, the, the farmers who are the most skillful at these practices have been displaced from their land, you know, not given loans and have continued to have ac- difficulty accessing the land to steward. So we have a lot of work to do to really tear down the barriers that young farmers and particularly young farmers of color are facing in accessing land. And once we're able to do that and have these farmers access land and do their important work, we will all benefit from that. So it's really in everyone's interest to support the next generation of farmers and particularly farmers of color and indigenous farmers. So earlier we made the important distinction between what our surveys and et cetera consider as farmers versus farm workers. I'm wondering if you can speak to the goals that you're trying to achieve at Young Farmers, especially with the distinction of finding opportunities for young people in agriculture, but as work for corporatized agribusinesses that are not only exploitative to their lands, but also often to their employees as well, compared to helping to democratize this playing field and empower young people, again, especially farmers of color, so that they can really have agency over how they wish to steward their lands and manage their fruits of labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, we're building a coalition of young farmers across the country who see these structural barriers and know that they're standing in the way of their success and are really motivated to tell their stories and 
ask for change. And so we have 44 chapters across the country in 25 states. We have farmers and all and members in all 50 states. And we work on organizing at that local level, bringing farmers together to encourage farmer to farmer learning and really tight um, social networks amongst farmers, fighting isolation, which is such an enormous barrier to being a young farmer to move to a rural area and need, you know, being needed to farm so much of the day, not being able to connect as much with others. These chapters are really lifelines that our farmers really identify as being something that keeps them going through the season, that they recognize that they're not alone, that they're not crazy to be trying to farm, that there are other young people out there like them doing this work. So we organize at the local level, and then we work on policy advocacy at the state and the federal level, working to change the policies that are standing in the way of these young farmers' success. And we're increasingly realizing that unless these policies are specifically centering the experience of farmers of color, they are continuing to perpetuate the status quo. And if, you know, if they don't have race-specific language, then the default is that, that white farmers are going to be the primary beneficiaries of these policies. So we're really looking at, at every policy that we promote with an equity lens to see who's deciding what policies to bring forward, who's benefiting from these policies, and, and fighting for policies that are really going to create success and, and ultimately equal outcomes, not just equal opportunities, but equal outcomes in agriculture. Well, we have a society that tends to undervalue manual labor and physical work like farming. So it may not seem like an appealing field of work to a lot of young people who've gone through the typical educational systems. Can you talk about your personal experience as a young farmer, how it's changed you or what it's added to your life that you didn't expect? And then also for other young farmers that you've gotten to know, what is usually their motivation? You know, my partner, Andrew, has been working towards a dream of starting a farm. And I've really been supporting him in that effort while working full time at the coalition. And he, his story doesn't yet have a happy ending. He's young, white, male, cisgendered with family support. I just think that's so important that even for him, who would seem to have, you know, he doesn't have a farm to inherit, but has so many other privileges going for him, has had such a difficult time getting a farm business off the ground because of his student loan debt, because of his difficulty accessing land, because of the rigor of farming and, and sort of impact it's had on his back and his body. And so for eight years or so, I was working for other farmers, businesses, started his own farm, didn't didn't work out for those reasons that I mentioned, and is, is back now working on a friend's operation. And so my experience after I farmed for about three years after that in and working towards our farm dream was just really that like firsthand experience of what it's like to see Andrew, someone who's so capable and has 
such important vision for his farm and for feeding his community just get get really discouraged by, you know, needing to sell his vegetables in New York City markets where mostly wealthy folks were buying his food because that's where he could get the price point that was that made it pencil out for him to grow produce. So, yeah, I don't want to be too negative about the prospects for young farmers. I think it is a real uphill battle and we really need the government to see these young people for what they are, which is just incredibly hardworking, driven, passionate, grounded with the um, values of stewardship and innovation and justice, like wanting to do right by their communities and by the land and supporting this and seeing this as a real opportunity for our country to um, support these, these young entrepreneurs and doing this incredible public service. But I think what motivates this generation is is that that real connection that ability to plant a seed or help birth a calf and get to and steward that life and have that life nourish their community and it's it's so hands on it's being your own boss outside you know reconnecting with the land it's really nourishing work, but the, the way that agriculture is structured through the capitalist you know, approach that we have with most of the, the federal support going towards larger commodity operations, that nourishing work is often leads to a lot of burnout for young farmers. So I'm really motivated as an organizer to help our network really see the possibility if we're able to change and reduce these structural barriers what's possible for ourselves and our businesses and for our country on a larger scale. Mm. So in spite of all of these challenges that young farmers and especially of color face, are you feeling like more and more young people are interested in getting into farming? I do. Yeah. You know, I think the, we have the, the young people who want to farm what we need to do is make it so that they can create viable farm businesses that we see too many farmers quit farming when they realize that they can't continue farming and, you know, save for retirement or start a family. So I really do feel like the interest is there. You know, we see particularly with farmers of color, you know, I hear from some folks, like, I think there's not so much interest there. You know, there's that connection to, oppression in the past. I'm really, I'm a white person who works in support of a lot of farmers of color, but what I'm seeing, and I can't, so I can't speak to this experience, but what I'm seeing is that this reconnection with the land is really healing and that there is an incredible interest. And we, we actually just had a young farmer grant program with Chipotle where we were giving out 50 $5,000 grants to young farmers. And we wanted to make sure that at least 50% were going to black, indigenous and people of color or BIPOC farmers. And it was so easy to get to that threshold of 50%. We, we far surpassed it. 39 out of the 50 grant winners were BIPOC farmers. And the interest was there and also the vision and excitement, like their applications were incredibly inspiring what they wanted to do on their sometimes 
very small pieces of land, sometimes family land or whatnot. So getting to, you know, decrease the average age of farmers in the U.S. is completely achievable if we can make some some switches to our farm bill dollars and what we're choosing to support with those dollars. So basically, the interest is there. Um, we just need to change these structural challenges that are keeping a lot of young people and young people of color wanting to get into this field from being able to become farmers and be able to steward their own lands. So in light of this, what is one thing you're most proud of your nonprofit having achieved at a policy level in support of young farmers? And what else do you think needs to be done as a top priority going forward? The top achievement. The last farm bill, the 2018 farm bill, had the most support for young farmers in farm bill history. And it was because our farmers worked together for multiple years to push their priorities forward. And we saw historic investments in beginning farmer training programs and outreach to what the USDA calls socially disadvantaged farmers, which are farmers of color and indigenous farmers and also veterans are included in that category. And so the investment in those two programs is incredible. They also reached the threshold for mandatory funding, which means we don't need to keep fighting for that funding every year. We don't have to keep fighting for that funding every farm bill cycle. We, we work to increase that, um, that amount of funding through you know, a- annual appropriations, but we have that baseline funding, which allows us to work on bigger picture goals, like how we, once farmers are trained and once farmers have access to the USDA programs meant to support them, how do we make sure that they have secure land access so that they can really invest in their businesses and the infrastructure and the soil that they need? Land is the basis of a farm business. And with insecure land access arrangement, it can be very volatile to farm. You know, we see farmers all the time on their third or fourth piece of land. And the work they're doing is really investing in that land and making it better for the next season, building that organic matter, decreasing weed pressure, adding soil amendments. This this work is energy and it's also money. And when farmers don't have secure access to that land, they're building somebody else's equity. And so for us in the next farm bill, land is going to be our big focus. You know, how can we have real reforms that make it so that young people can access the land they need to grow, start and grow their farm businesses? Mm. And as we're wrapping up, what is the message you want to give to our listeners who may be aspiring farmers or maybe farming curious? And what actions do you recommend that we take in support of young, ecologically minded farmers and stewards of our land? Yeah, absolutely. My message for the young farmers out there is that you are not alone, that you're a part of a national movement. Your work is not only a important contribution to your community, but it's also nationally raising the profile of agriculture. And we really encourage, if you're not already engaged with the National Young Farmers Coalition, 
to join us. We have so many ways to be involved from participating in a local chapter or starting a new one or weighing in on our policy process. You know, we're in the process of determining those policy objectives and we have a a process where farmers get to decide themselves. So that is really important to us that our farmers are leading the way at our coalition opportunities to get involved and meet your member of Congress or your state legislators that you can tell your story um, and ask for change. So we're, there's so many ways to get involved in our coalition. And for those who are non-farmers, it's not just voting with your fork. I mean, I think it is so important to buy locally from farmers, from young farmers, from young farmers of color and support their businesses directly but also we need your voice to demand change in DC. We don't have enough farmers to get that critical capacity and and to change minds in DC. We need supporters and consumers to stand with us. So we have a really easy action alert system. Listeners can text farmers to 40649 to sign up for our action alerts. And so that when we do have opportunities Um, We have some upcoming opportunities with COVID relief for farmers. You can get a text to take action and it takes just a couple of minutes to email your member of Congress. And it's so helpful to have these members hearing from their constituents, both farmers and non-farmers, that we need to support the next generation in agriculture. So I encourage everyone to text farmers to 40649 or check out youngfarmers.org to learn more about us and how to get involved. Well, to learn more and stay updated on Sophie's work at Young Farmers, you can head to www.youngfarmers.org and you can also follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Young Farmers and on Facebook at Young Farmers Coalition. Sophie herself is also on Instagram. You can follow her at Sophie.Akoff. Sophie, we're so grateful for you and all you do. And thank you so much for your leadership and also for sharing this time with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Yeah, you know, I think the young farmers and farmers of color are doing this work despite all obstacles, and we really all benefit if they're successful. So let's let's go out there and raise our voices together to demand the, the government support and incentivize their, their farms so we can all benefit. This wraps up today's episode. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show and find our independent platform valuable, please, please come join our Patreon starting at just a tip of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is I Need Angels by Adrian Sutherland. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so, so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. I need angels, I need angels.